0: A podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration, refugee, citizenship law, and other border-related issues. I'm Steve Murrens, and I'm joined today by Peter Edelman. Both of us are Canadian immigration lawyers, and with us today is Andrew Hayes, an American immigration lawyer who practices in Vancouver. Uh, we are recording this podcast on September 6, 2019, and about three weeks ago, Uh, The media reported that U.S. President Donald Trump was proposing a new public charge rule, which would make it more difficult for immigrants living in the United States to legally obtain green cards uh, if they use public benefits. What is the public charge rule and how is Donald Trump proposing to modify it? And how does Canadian immigration law work with regards to people who will need social assistance uh, or who might be expensive for the state? And how does this work both in Canada and the United States? And uh, so without further ado, I think I will flip it over to Andrew. Andrew, thanks for joining us today. And uh, what is the public charge rule?
1: Well, thank you, Stephen. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm glad to talk about these things. Um, so my name is Andrew Hayes. I'm a, an American and a Canadian and I uh, live here in uh, in British Columbia. And my practice is uh, U.S. immigration law. Uh, in reference to the public charge rule, it's really a uh, it's derived from a statute. So, just before we get into what it is, I just want to give a quick overview of how U.S. immigration law works. Uh, Congress has passed a law; it's known as the uh, U.S. Uh, immigration and Nationality Act. Uh, it's been amended. It's been amended several times over the years. Uh, But, uh, unlike, I would, you know, you guys can talk about this, unlike Canadian law, U.S. law is very difficult to change when we're in a position of political gridlock. So uh, a lot of the actual application of the law by the executive agencies that put this law into action takes place through rulemaking. Uh, And in this situation, Congress never defined what a public charge was. But it's said that people that are likely to become a public charge are inadmissible to the United States, which means they are ineligible for permanent residence, uh, theoretically for visas, and for actual admission into the country. So when, uh, under current uh, jurisprudence, under what's called the Chevron Doctrine, whenever Congress is ambiguous about a particular uh, word or phrase, the uh, agency that has been delegated the authority to put that line to effect can come up with an interpretation of what that is and thereby um, essentially uh, make rules explaining what a public charge is. So that comes to uh, the situation uh, with this this new definition. uh, It's going to take effect on October 15th of this year, 2019, and it fundamentally changes what a public charge is. Uh, Previously, Uh, you could overcome this issue in most immigration scenarios through something that was called an affidavit of support. This was a contract between the petitioner, the person that was looking to support, let's say, a spouse or a child or other relative, or perhaps a business that was petitioning for a worker. Um, Well, that that doesn't happen as much in this context, but family context is where this occurs, the, uh, this contract basically makes sure that if the immigrant takes certain types of means-tested public benefits, uh, they were sort of enumerated uh, by the agency, uh, that the government can ask for that money back from the petitioner or from the beneficiary. Uh, that has been sufficient basically up until now. The new rule change is going to allow the USCIS, which is the agency headed by Ken uh, Cuccinelli, who's the new, new director following system, uh, this agency now can look into the future as to whether it's likely this person will become a public charge and deny them potentially a green card or other, other admission. Uh, and so they follow basically a totality of the circumstances test looking at age. Uh, health uh, and a whole number, a whole litany of other factors, which are going, to, of course, be very interesting to the, the practitioners in the field. Uh, but this is all comes directly from the executive, uh, and not Congress, which, of course, will undoubtedly be
0: litigated as whether this is a permissible interpretation of public charge. So, this is going to be a really basic U.S. immigration question. You mentioned that right now, the public charge people have been able, petitioners have been able to use affidavits of support. Does the United States have a points based economic immigration system similar to Canada's where people can immigrate without having someone from the United States petitioning them? Uh, the answer to that is no. There are
1: limited circumstances where a person could self petition. Uh, and of course, uh, if a person is, I guess you could say, immigrating through uh, refugee status or asylee uh, status, you wouldn't have a petitioner. But largely, um, no, uh, it is connections-based immigration. There must be a petitioner, an individual or a company,
0: and a beneficiary. So outside of, say, like the refugee stream, what percent of immigrants would go through this petition system?
1: Uh, they would be affected by this rule. Uh, 60 to 70 percent are family-based uh, immigrants. Uh, the vast majority are, uh, would be affected by this rule. And the others are the people who are sponsored by companies. We have business immigration, I believe it's something like 15 to 20%, yeah. and the remainders are uh, sort of uh, stranger offshoots, and including, of course, refugees and asylees.
0: Okay. Yeah, we can. that can be a topic for another <laughs> day, how the United States came to not have... An independent base or an independent immigration, independent economic immigration program.
1: I, uh, the Trump administration has actually proposed uh, legislation uh, along those lines, but I think it's very unlikely that that will become
0: law. Okay. Um, so going back to the public charge, the what what kind of reaction then? Just ignoring the the procedural way in which whether the executive has the authority to do this, like. What, what are the concerns about the change from a substantive impact?
1: I think it's it's largely on how it's implemented. So uh, looking at some of my uh, uh, sources here, and I do want to mention that some of my sources here are include uh, the Boundless uh, blog, boundless.com blog, which has some very interesting links uh, for those that are interested in this subject. Uh, I'm not affiliated with them, but I found their, their information very useful. Uh, One of the major concerns here is that a positive factor, so just rewind here quickly to the affidavit of support. The petitioner must demonstrate that they have 125% uh, income uh, measured against the federal poverty guidelines. Uh, So for a family of two, that's basically income of $21,000. You can use assets to settle that as well, uh, but the number is, is, let's say, $21,000. One of the major changes is that a highly ranked factor in this totality of circumstance test as to whether a person is likely to, in the future, become a uh, public charge is uh, jumping it from 125% to 250%. And uh, just looking at uh, the information cited in this blog, uh, I'm just going to quote this here. DHS could begin den- denying up to nearly half of all marriage uh, green card applicants uh, each year, forcing nearly two hundred thousand couples to either leave the United States together or leave apart, or live apart indefinitely. I think there's a lot of speculation right now, but uh, by changing some of these, it could affect you know hundreds of thousands of people. potentially. And,
2: and so, so what they're taught. So when you say two hundred and fifty from 125 to 250 percent, so you're going from 20,
1: from 20,000 U.S. to 40,000 U.S., is that...? That's correct. The affidavit of support is used to be necessary and sufficient. It's now just become necessary. On top of that, this new interpretation of public charge adds an entirely different uh, test. Uh, in fact, there'll be a new form for it. Uh, for those of you that are interested, it's form I-944. Uh, and it's basically looking to the future and saying, is this person likely to become a public charge based on these uh, series of factors? And one of those that is highly weighted is whether the income of the petitioner is at 250%. So how, I guess the devil's in the details. How, how heavily? We will, we will find out and see how USCIS uh, applies
0: this. And so is there something? So in Canada, in order to sponsor a relative, oh, there's exceptions to this, but generally you have to meet what's called the low-income cutoff unless you're sponsoring a spouse, and for parents it's 30% more. But that's all clearly set out ahead of time. Like So when you go to the IRCC website, it will say to sponsor a family member your income must be this. Um, Is that knowledge available? is that something petitioners all have to meet at the outset in the United States as well, or it would only come up after the fact in this public charge context?
1: That's a that's a great question. So uh, this rule affects the Department of Homeland Security, and at least at the moment, not the Department of State. So the people that will be most affected by this are the people that are using the U.S. process known as adjustment of status. Uh, I'll just give a scenario here to make it uh, a little bit more uh, clear. So, take an H-1B. These are your classic uh, highly skilled, highly educated workers. Uh, let's say while in the United States, they're they're doing they're they're working, and uh, they meet an American citizen, and they wish to uh, immigrate based on their uh, marriage to that U.S. citizen. They're inside the country they're utilizing what's called an adjustment of status. They're moving from a uh, non-immigrant temporary category while in the states up to that of an immigrant. As part of that process, the US citizen has to demonstrate that they can meet these, uh, this 125% uh, threshold. This new rule means that once they're at the very end of the process, an officer from USCIS will determine this, hey, in addition, in addition to all of that, are you likely to become a public charge? And this rule sets out the factors there, but how is it actually applied is, is the big question. So yes, this person could run into a problem at the very end of the process without having really any, uh, you know, knowing how it's going to come down. So uh, if a person is outside the country, they're dealing with the Department of State, and at least at the moment, the consulates are not affected by this rule. It may be expanded to the consulates. We all wait and see. So in in terms
2: of and I just just dealing with spouses perhaps first, just because the, the the situation in Canada is a bit different when it when we deal with spouses versus other family members. So maybe if we can start with spouses. So the way it works in Canada is that their a spouse will have to engage in a sponsorship agreement, and then if the person goes on social assistance, which is defined in the law. Essentially, welfare gets welfare payments. The provincial governments, who are the ones that actually administer that, will then send them a bill. In other words, they'll be uh, on the hook or, or they'll be responsible for those payments as part of the process of the sponsorship. So, in other words, when you sponsor somebody. But for spouses, there's no requirement for income. And my understanding of that. I I imagine that there's a number of reasons for that, but one of the reasons for that is because the Canadian spouse isn't always the breadwinner in the family. In other words, the foreign, the the spouse who's a foreign national may in fact be the breadwinner in the family and this Canadian spouse may be the homemaker or the 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 person uh, may not be bringing in the income in the family. Is that part taken into consideration when you're dealing with spouses in the U.S. under this new system, and in the sense of if the breadwinner is the foreign national, do you need to have uh, the the U.S. citizen who's making the money themselves, or will it be family income that will be sufficient?
1: To it, it sounds like what you have just uh, described there is, is pretty much analogous to the what, what's called the affidavit of support. It's essentially this agreement or contract. Uh, and the answer to that is is no. In fact, the U.S. citizen is not required to do that. But if the it's the U.S. citizen petitioner, but if they're unable to do that, uh, so several other situations need to occur. Uh, one that yes, the foreign the the beneficiary, the foreign spouse, will say, uh, could uh, use their assets or income, depending on where that income is derived from and how likely it is to continue after they immigrate. They can use that uh, as as can. Uh, a, a joint sponsor. So, in essence, the petitioner can go to another U.S. citizen. Uh, often, it's a parent or a relative, and they can essentially join this uh, contract. Uh, and uh, so, yes, there are there are ways around that, but it always starts with the petitioner. And these are other ways to uh, to meet that requirement. Okay. So, but this is uh, in
2: with respect to these affidavits of support. Are those generally enforced in the U.S. or
1: are they? That's a great question, no. That's one of the big issues here is that they traditionally have not been enforced. Uh, The president has actually directed uh, his his agencies to start to enforce uh, the the affidavits. Uh, We'll see see to what degree that actually occurs, but uh, traditionally not highly enforced, no. Sorry, just my other. In terms of the benefits
2: we're talking about, just because my my understanding of the U.S. system is actually quite limited in terms of who provides which benefits, and my illusions about the scope of the benefits that would be provided, anyways. Um, but would that vary from state to state in the sense that there might be benefits that somebody would be able to get in California that they wouldn't get in Alabama or whatever the. The state is, or this, is this just relating to federal benefits, and if so, what,
1: what is the scope of them? What, what are the scope of the ones that you're talking about? So uh, traditionally, with the I-64, which of course is still in play here, that's, that's not going anywhere. Um, the, it was certain federal benefits uh, of, uh, let's say it's uh, temporary assistance to needy families or TAMF, that's uh, the classic welfare. Uh, supplemental uh, income SSI. There was, a set, there was enumerated programs uh, which you could not avail yourself of. The certain means-tested public benefits for which the federal government could theoretically ask for a, basically a repayment of those, taken, uh, those benefits taken. Uh, this new rule, leaving aside all of the affidavit of support stuff, changes this and says that if people have taken a much longer list, including theoretically certain state benefits, Uh, And and, uh, the whole list is is available both at the rule and in many of the online descriptions of what what are discussed here, Uh, certain Medicaid, certain Section 8 and 9 housing, uh, etc., etc., food stamps, uh, is that that will be weighed against this likelihood that you will become a a public charge. So in essence, if you have taken, I think the rule is, if you've taken these benefits for a period of 12 months, uh, over a 36-month period, that... Could in itself create you know, an inadmissibility. Looking back at previous actions before you actually stand in front of the officer to have your, uh, let's say, your adjustment status green card case adjudicated. And on top of that is the totality circumstance test, where they look at your credit score, your, your health, your age, a whole series of other factors to say, leaving aside whether you've actually taken any public benefits, is there a likelihood that you will in the future? And that's where it becomes nebulous. And I think that's what's got a lot of people spooked is, well, how, how are those
0: determinations going to come down? So, the, it's, um, the like, the undertaking that sponsors do in Canada, like, it couldn't be clear. If you take a social benefit, you're paying it back. The provinces are pretty diligent about going after any social assistance provided. I don't even know fully how they know whether someone was sponsored or not, uh, but if they go on public housing, welfare, they'll get a bill from the province. That doesn't happen in the United States despite these affidavits.
1: My understanding is that it's, it's essentially not been pursued aggressively. In fact, uh, one interesting fact here is is that It has been probably more aggressively pursued as the contract between the beneficiary and the petitioner. It's not as well known that it also creates a cause of action by the beneficiary, the immigrant, against the petitioner for support. So theoretically, under this contract, the immigrant can sue the the spouse even after divorce and say, pay me 125% of the federal poverty guideline threshold pay me the 21, or whatever the number will be for the year, pay me that money. Uh, on top of that, due to a Fifth Circuit decision from Judge Posner, there's no duty to mitigate. So, somewhat strangely here, the immigrant can, uh, you know, presumably there's been a breakdown in the relationship, can kick up their heels and not look for work, be able-bodied, and sue the petitioner and any joint sponsor for that support into perpetuity because uh, there are only several, I think it's four different conditions on which the contract is actually uh, you know, uh, you know, removed. Uh, obviously death is, is, one of, is one of those, uh, becoming a citizen and working for 10 years or 40 quarters of social security are those. So the irony of all of this is the I-864 I- is actually an extremely powerful document. And sort of you know, one lends the question is, why is this rule necessary when there already is this very powerful contract both between the government and the parties and between the parties themselves that currently doesn't appear to be highly enforced so there's no sorry just to be clear there's not an and
2: when they say will become a future a charge in the future you're looking at an indefinite future or is there a period of time that you're looking at in terms of the assessment like in the sense of are you going to become a public charge like in Canada when you're sponsoring a spouse you're going to be responsible for that spouse for three years mm. and if the spouse goes on welfare even after the divorce even if there's a divorce or a separation and the spouse goes on welfare you as the sponsor will get a bill or, or uh, the, the government will come and request repayments of the payments that were made to the spouse during that period of time but not any time after the three years or the ten years, which used to be the, the time frame for uh, parental sponsorship, That's which is funny. now twenty years, right? So you take you you engage yourself for twenty years if you're sponsoring parents or grandparents in Canada, and so if over the twenty-year period, and we've seen cases. You know, I had a case where uh, a, uh, a a woman found herself. She is she was separated, and her in-laws had been living in the basement of their of the matrimonial home unbeknownst to her collecting welfare despite being supported by the family and she was looking at a significant bill that had accumulated over the course of six or seven years uh, and had gotten that bill but even in that the, that this was an old case where the, the, the overall time frame was 10 years it's now, a fixed time frame, um, so I'm wondering if in the US, so we, we have these fixed agreements in terms of sponsorships and fixed time frames depending on the category of the sponsorship. Um, for the undertaking. For the undertaking. Yeah. And then we can talk about Section 39, which is rarely applied in Canada, in my experience, outside the temporary residence, like when I've, I don't know, have you ever seen, have you had a permanent
0: residence case? And spousal sponsorships. In so yeah, in a spousal sponsorship context where somebody so section thirty nine of the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act says someone's basically inadmissible, can be inadmissible due to financial reasons. I don't think they tie it directly to becoming a public charge or receiving <laughs> social so,
1: assistance but so, so to answer your question the, the, oh sorry go ahead, no, go ahead. Uh, to an- answer, answer your question it's it's a determination of admissibility so the affidavit of support the the, the undertaking that the the, co- the contract portion that just exists until it's terminated and it's those four conditions basically the person dies the person becomes a US citizen sorry the immigrant dies becomes a citizen uh, has another affidavit. Uh, Executed for them, uh, or works the forty quarters. That remains the same. Or what's the last one? Uh, Works forty quarters of uh, of uh, Social Security. Essentially, works ten years. Okay. Uh, That contract will remain in place forever (laughs) until one of those things occur. The in the determination of public charge is an inadmissibility, so that can affect theoretically at any time. And this is where it gets kind of dicey. So where this is initially going to affect people is you have to be admissible to receive a green card it's one of the requirements so when you stand in front of the officer at USCIS and they say is this individual admissible or not if they think in the future and i would have to look more closely if that's limited by 5 years or whatever but i believe let's say uh, in case i'm in case i'm wrong i'm not 100% sure but basically do I think this person is likely to become a public charge in the future? That would be one determination. But theoretically, this could occur in other circumstances as well because the grounds of inadmissibility are also brought into the grounds of removability or deportability. So if a person, let's say a permanent resident, uh, is outside the country for too long and they're seeking admission at the border, um, theoretically, if they make that determination there, CBP, Customs Board of Protection, that could be another area this comes up. Or possibly during naturalization. So uh, these vagaries are, are, I think, what's got people, you know, wondering how 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 uh, far, or how widely will this be applied, and in what contexts? So you could lose
2: your permanent, like in the U.S., you could lose your permanent resident status on this ground. Yes. Okay. Yes. Because in, in Canada, under so we were just talking about Section Thirty Nine, and just to compare with Canada, so Section Thirty Nine, and maybe I'll just read it because we were talking about or Steve was talking about a it, minute. It says a foreign national is inadmissible for financial reasons if they are or will be unable or unwilling to support themselves or any other person who is dependent on them, and have not satisfied an officer that adequate arrangements for care and support, other than those that involve social assistance, have been made. And so usually when we see this applied, like in in my experience, the vast majority of the time when I see this is applied is somebody who shows up at the border and they can't show that they have financial means to support themselves, right? So you'll see somebody who comes in, I'm going to Whistler, uh, I'm gonna go skiing for the weekend. How much money do you have? I have 25 bucks. And it's like, you're not going skiing in Whistler for 25 bucks. You're, You're gonna do something else to get the money. So, working you know, without authorization working yeah. without whatever it is that you're going to be doing but usually it's a concern the underlying concern is usually around work without authorization not not necessarily social assistance yeah the times i've seen it
0: in the permanent residency context have been just spousal sponsorships where the sponsor recently got out of bankruptcy um and so that's another bar to sponsorship is if you're bankrupt so but again like it's there's usually ways around it in the Canadian immigration context through humanitarian and compassionate factors in the economic streams. You wouldn't like, you wouldn't get to the unable to support yourself financially stage in a lot of the economic immigration programs. Cause they're either based on you having a job in Canada and working at the job in Canada, or if you're applying from outside of Canada showing that either you have a job offer or minimum settlement funds. Mm. So you wouldn't see, Financial inadmissibility arise there. What's the consequence in the U.S. if someone is turned back because they're determined to be financially inadmissible? Is it just turned back, come back later? Is it like a ban? Is it? It would depend on where on where that
1: occurs. Uh, if the person was, is within is in the country, uh, let's say that they are uh, adjusting status and that uh, that uh, request is denied, uh, they would either have to maintain uh, their um, underlying non-immigrant status. I mean, if, if a formal determination of inadmissibility was made, well, I suppose that would be, uh, <laughs> that, that, that would be interesting because theoretically then they are, are removable. Theoretically. Uh, apparently, the Department of Justice is promulgating some rules around this issue uh, currently, so I can't weigh in on, on that specifically, how they're going to deal with this. Uh, at, at the border, of course, they'll simply just refuse admission. A person that is inadmissible may not be admitted to the country. Um, the well, unless a waiver or exception is found, but we'll leave that out of leave that out of it for, for, for now. Uh, just a quick thought on the uh, economic stream. So the, the affidavits of support are not used in the econo- or in the business immigration context. So where this rule is going to come in is that if a person's adjusting status based off of the, let's take that H one B. Hypothetical firm before uh, they're working for Microsoft, as so many do, or take your take your fill in your tech company. uh, That uh, this theoretically should apply because you still need to be admissible to adjust. So all of those folks are now going to have this analysis, presumably. All right. So
2: I guess my um, just coming back to the permanent residence issue. Because here it doesn't apply to permanent residence at all, right? Once so the only thing that applies to, like once you're a permanent resident, if, you, if your circumstances change or you end up on, like financial circumstances aren't relevant to maintaining permanent residence in any way. Or applying for citizenship. Or applying for citizenship. And so in the sense of... It just is a section that doesn't only applies to foreign nationals. So it applies up to getting permanent residents and then doesn't apply anymore yes. after that. Now, a permanent resident who goes on welfare, they personally will not be affected. It will be their sponsor who may be f- financially on the hook for the welfare, um, but the like the social assistance. And, and just to be clear, in Canada, we have a completely different um, process for dealing with medical inadmissibility. Yeah, I, mean, I was just about to... We've had a session about that. I yeah. think we, we had a long discussion, I think, on uh, uh, well, one of the previous podcasts with respect to medical inadmissibility, because that's dealt with as a completely different category. And this social assistance issue doesn't cover medical inadmissibility at all. Um, but I'm, I'm interested about this losing permanent residence for becoming a public charge or the risk of being a public charge in the future, is that actually deployed in the U.S.? Like, in the sense, do people actually lose their permanent residence or in the past have they lost their permanent residence
1: because they get food stamps or something? Not that I'm aware of, uh, not in the past, but this is a a grounds of inadmissibility, and so it comes up whenever an inadmissibility concept would come up. So uh, usually when a a person becomes a lawful permanent resident or LPR, green card holder, uh, they don't really interface with with inadmissibility unless they're in certain contexts. Uh, Theoretically, the grounds of inadmissibility are also incorporated in the grounds of removability. And so... This is one of the big questions is, well, what, what is the implication here? Uh, and that's what the Department of Justice is going to figure out how they're going to look at this. Uh, one strange aspect of U.S. immigration, which is derived from a, a, a old case called uh, the matter of Flutie, is when, an, when a permanent resident leaves the country and comes back in, they're not treated as making a request for admission, it's a request for entry. Uh, unless certain circumstances have occurred. And one of those is being outside the country for more than, I think it's 180 days, basically. Uh, something that exceeds the, quote, brief, casual, innocent departure. There are several other grounds as well, for example, committing a crime abroad. Uh, so if an permanent resident leaves the country, comes back after a short trip, they're not subject to the grounds of inadmissibility when they re-enter. But let's say they, have a, they work in a country abroad for a, a period of time more than 180 days on, let's say, a, a, a re-entry permit, something like that. Theoretically, at the border, there's a question of admissibility, and this ground would theoretically apply. So, just to be, because this is very different than the way it works
2: in Canada, in the sense that inadmissibility is applies to people based on their status, regardless of where they are. So, a foreign national is inadmissible On a certain number of grounds, whether they're in Canada or outside of Canada, they are inadmissible on those grounds. Um, For example, criminality or misrepresentation or whatever the situation might be. A permanent resident is inadmissible on a certain set of grounds, organized criminality, security grounds. Crime, international crimes, things, like misrepresentation, etc. So there's a number of grounds of inadmissibility that apply to permanent residents and foreign nationals. There are some grounds of inadmissibility that only apply to foreign nationals. Then I mean, there's one ground of inadmissibility that only applies to uh, um, uh, permanent residents in terms of the residency obligation. But it has nothing to do with where they are. So I'm wondering about this inadmissibility in the States. Can you just explain, like if somebody is a member of a criminal organization or commits a serious crime, are they rendered inadmissible in the United States
1: regardless of where they are? Is that a different process that you're talking about? Uh, I'd say theoretically, yes. Uh, Yes. Ultimately, permanent residents uh, are able to avail themselves of due process. So, just to use, I'll, I'll, I'll get into that as well. But if a person at the border, let's say there's a determination made at the border that you know you've committed a crime, uh, you're inadmissible, how, how would they deal with that? Well, they if the person insisted on being admitted, they would be put in front of uh, a an immigration judge, which is an ad, administrative judge, to d- decide whether. This inadmissibility you know, rises to the level of uh, removability, whether there are grounds of relief and all these sorts of questions. Uh, so, but yes, I mean a person that, that a permanent resident in the United States that is arrested and convicted of a crime uh, and is released may very well get picked up by immigration customs enforcement, ICE, and issued a notice to appear and then be put into the uh, removal or removal process. Uh, so, yes, and and would that apply to somebody who went on
2: food stamps, for example? In other words, like if, if I was in Miami, I'm a permanent resident, I'm in Miami, and the circumstances of my family are such that I have to go and get food stamps, but I don't leave the U.S. at all, could, it, could I, in theory, find myself subject to removal proceedings? as a permanent
0: resident?
1: I would say, in theory, I don't believe that's going to happen in practice, and I think it really comes down to how the Department of Justice looks looks at this and applies this. Uh, There are the the two portions of this rule, one of which is looking behind, for example, what have you actually done and what are you going to do in the future? And how this actually applied in the removal context is is really anyone's guess. I would say it would be too far to say that yes, if you're a permanent resident and avail yourself of of food stamps or something like that, you're going going to get removed. That's just, I can't imagine that's going to happen.
0: The law in the INA doesn't distinguish, I guess, between permanent residents and foreign nationals. It just says what? like immigrants can't be public charges or like the actual law that Congress enacted. Well, if you just give me just one second,
1: we'll, we'll pull it up here. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and the other question I'm, we can address after is, I guess you can think of in Canada, the excessive demand rule that Peter touched on earlier and that we've talked about before on this podcast as a public charge inadmissibility. Um, because it is, essentially, it's saying that the state is going to have to pay too much towards health care. I hadn't thought of it. Although it's not, I
2: think the difference with medical inadmissibility for me is that it's, although following some of the decisions from the courts, the ability of people with significant means to overcome medical inadmissibility is different than for people who don't have means. Yeah. And that's always been, or, or that's something, that that's a... Uh, been in part created by the courts in terms of an ability to overcome that inadmissibility. But, but the medical inadmissibility, kilowitz, yeah, in yeah, kilowits in the in the Supreme Court of Canada. But the um in terms of the inadmissibility itself is based on the medical condition rather than the financial means. In other words, it's not right. connected to somebody's ability to pay for medical. Uh, for medical support, it's whether or not you are have an illness that's going to create,
0: uh, that's going to put you over the top of the average. Or whatever. Yeah, there are different ways that I mean, on the social benefits, there's that ability to pay for the benefits. I've seen on the um one of the, the irony benefits, you mean? uh, like people receiving. I can't remember the recent rule changes regarding like if your child needs to have special tutoring or special support services for autism or anything like that. But on the like even for prescription drugs, one of the ironies of like several of the say, pharmacare plans in DC is that you only get the public benefit if you're below a certain income. Whereas if you're above it, the province doesn't cover it and you're expected to pay on your own. So those people won't actually have an excessive demand because it's not a public benefit that they're receiving. They have to pay for the drugs. Whereas people who don't go above those certain incomes, Pharmacare will pay, and then they're medically inadmissible. Have they cal- have they
2: calculated in that way?
0: Yeah. Oh, we've seen it for um, people who get well. The, the fairness letter saying, here's what we think your cost is. And we've acted for like, doctors and stuff, and it's the system luckily inside out. And they're like, well, no, I actually pay for it all directly because I'm not covered by uh, the Pharmacare stuff. Oh, okay. Well, that's an interesting... Uh, I hadn't actually considered
2: the pharmacare issue as an income issue in the sense of, that you
0: overcome it simply by saying that you have a certain income. Uh, yeah, because if... the uh, Well, these different income threshold tests and what drugs and what percent of the drug pharmacare will cover is largely income dependent. And so if you're
2: below a certain income, you'll not only be rendered inadmissible under Section 39 financially, But you could be over the Section 39 financial thresholds. But if you're within the Pharmacare thresholds... No, I haven't seen it in 39, 38, excessive demand. But if you were within the the section... But that's what I'm saying, is if your income was such that you were within the
0: Pharmacare thresholds, then you're inadmissible because the public is covering your drugs for the medical you're yeah. medically you're rendered medically you're inadmissible. inadmissible whereas if you're wealthy enough that you have to pay for the drugs yourself you're not medically inadmissible because the state isn't incurring the charge so you can
2: be sick and wealthy but you can't be sick and have more limited means right uh, is which is what Hillowitz says in in a broader sense um, but I, I hadn't uh, no that's an interesting I hadn't, I hadn't realized how it applied with respect to the pharmacare uh,
0: in terms of because the pharmacare thresholds are higher than the welfare thresholds are they not oh yeah but it's a 38 I think like it's a medical inadmissibility not financial right so as we talked like I guess this is something in the U.S. Is there such a, like, is there a medical inadmissible? can someone be inadmissible for being sick? Uh, Yes, there's,
1: it's uh, treated uh, earlier in the same section. Section uh, of the Immigration
0: Act 212 lists out all of the inadmissibilities. And is that sick because, like, they're a risk to the public health or because they'll be expensive to treat?
1: Uh, both, they can also be a risk to themselves. That's uh, right. so. This applies to people that uh, you know may be experiencing uh, depression or other sorts of uh, medical uh, ailments, uh, and that has to be overcome through a medical a medical exam. Uh, I think pretty similar uh, to Canada. Depression. I mean, yeah, someone can be medically like. What would?
2: Beyond honor- danger, it's a danger. Potentially a danger. To, it's, but it's not, a,
1: it's not a, a resource issue, it's a danger issue, is that? That's how it's uh, stated within uh, 212. Uh, it's a person that has a physical or mental disorder or behavior associated with a disorder that may pose or has posed a threat to property, safety or welfare of the alien or others. So, pretty expansive language, which is often the case of the INA. And just to, I just want to circle back very quickly to the uh, actual language of the INA. Now, this is the actual law here. Uh, so, what Congress and uh, the president at the time actually signed into, into law. So, the INA being the... Immigration and Nationality Act. Our actual law. all This other okay. stuff is just <laughs> we, we try we try to spell out the alphabet soup. For <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> for, even we get lost in it. So, so the actual language is so an, another term that's that's thrown around in U.S. immigration is the term alien, and an alien means anyone that's not a citizen. So that includes permanent residence. So, any the public charge section says any alien who in the opinion of the consular officer at the time of application for a visa or in the opinion of the attorney general at the time of an application for admission right at the border uh, or adjustment of status what we talked about in most of these family based green card cases or i guess supposedly on a business based immigration uh... adjustment is likely any time to be a become a public charge is inadmissible so quite expansive language there uh, I also looked up. I uh, but just, just to clarify, because I just want to make sure.
2: that wouldn't apply to the person who was a green card holder who remained in the United States. Is that is that correct, or is that? I'm just trying to
1: understand. So Congress states that a permanent resident can only be deported on a public charge grounds within the first five years of obtaining their green card, and only if that public charge based on a circumstance that existed before they obtained the green card. Uh, so if someone had, let's say, uh, availed themselves before they became a permanent resident, that could theoretically be used as a ground of deportation. So, yes, but there are some
0: limitations to that. Uh, theoretically, well, it it's the application almost as if it's from application to time of approval the five years after, based on that incurred. Is that like how I read like the U.S. considers the border to be like the physical border, and then anything 100 miles in, or am I completely... The
1: 100-mile rule, uh, probably worth an entire podcast (laughs) in in, in itself, uh, is really a jurisdictional rule, uh, and also uh, allows uh, Customs and Border Protection to, under certain circumstances, use an expedited removal procedure, which is essentially a summary non-reviewable deportation. Uh, there has uh, been some other rule expansions as to what what uh, relief can be sought from uh, from that in terms of when can a piece person be ER when found within that area and where this has come up time and time again is or the searches ER. uh, sorry expedited removal right,
0: I'm using the acronym right. I actually was like <laughs> thinking medical so I was like
1: okay. uh, I. And, and so, uh, just just you know, where this has frequently come up in the news is that there's effectively been stops. Let's say a highway stop, and you're, you're driving along in your car. All of a sudden, you're being pulled over, and, and uh, a customs and border protection officers saying, "You know, where's you know, prove that you're a citizen." And so, you know, quite a few people have uh, found, uh, I guess, entertainment and uh, fame in just resisting that and seeing where it, seeing where it goes. Mm-hmm. But that is the hundred mile uh, hundred mile rule. And so in terms of the
2: impact of these changes, what, what do experts in your, like in, in terms of the discussions that are happening right now, what do you see as the direction the Trump administration is going with this? Like what, what do you think they're trying to do or what do you think is
1: likely to be the way that this is, these changes look like they're going to be deployed? This seems to me, honestly, just the inverse of what happened at the end of the Obama administration. So this is uh, this, so uh, on the Obama administration, one of the most famous executive actions was, of course, the deferred action for childhood arrivals, the, the DACA, uh, in which it uh, was supposedly an exercise of prosecutorial discretion not to remove certain uh, individuals, uh, meritorious individuals. These were the children that were brought usually when they were very small, to the United States, uh, have completed a certain amount of education, do not have criminal issues, et cetera. Basically, kids that have grown up in the U.S., the government said, we're not going to prioritize you for deportation. In fact, they created a bit of a shield and, in fact, work authorization for some of them. This is very controversial as a question of, was that legislating through the executive orders? Uh, This is uh, rulemaking through the agency and really is, I would say, closely related. Uh, an expansion of, you know, substantive treatments of people without putting this through Congress. Uh, in fact, I imagine that uh, the conservative wing of the Supreme Court, if they ever hear, hear this case, I mean, there will definitely be legal challenges, uh, will ask themselves, was this a permissible interpretation of public charge? Uh, And one of the ironies here is that the Chevron case that I mentioned earlier, the uh, Supreme Court uh, basically decided that deference is due to the agencies under certain circumstances, uh, really arose from the EPA under uh, Neil Gorsuch's uh, mother. Uh, She headed up the EPA during that time. Uh, Neil Gorsuch is very much uh, against Chevron deference because it uh, basically allocates legislative power away from Congress, well, Congress and the President, to the executive. So so just for, for our listeners the
2: the debate around Chevron is very similar to the debate around standard review which you'll be familiar with from previous podcasts if you've listened to our previous <laughs> podcasts. There's a, a long-standing uh, uh, confusion to state it mildly around uh, or disagreements around how, standard or review should be applied in relation to how deferential courts should be to decisions by administrative decision makers. That same debate has happened in the United States. In, our, in, in Canada, it's in relation to Dunsmuir, and we're waiting for the trilogy of cases to come down uh, in Vavilov and, and uh, Bell. And There's three cases that we're waiting for a decision from our Supreme Court that's going to either clarify or muddy the waters uh, as the case may be. Um, but the Chevron Doctrine is the equivalent of Dunsmuir. Uh, I mean, it's not the same doctrine, but the it deals with the same issue in the United States. So, um, you know, you're having the same challenges <laughs> yeah, and the same, and the, same uh, the, the same questions within the court around certain people who think the courts should be deferential to administrative action and others who are of the view that the courts should be uh, more interventionist in overseeing uh, the administrative action. So just to provide some context there, but you were, you were saying that M- Neil Gorsuch, who's one of the members of the conservative wing of the U.S. Supreme Court is likely to, on the one hand, want to uphold what the administration has done, presumably, but on the other hand uh, would be hostile to this type of, of very broad executive action is that my understanding, or is that, or is the the conservative branch quite open to this type of very expansive um, taking over of uh, powers by the executive through
1: these types of interpretive mechanisms? Well, generally speaking, the conservative branch of the of the Supreme Court uh, is I won't say hostile, but is is very worried about. Uh, separation of powers. And I guess historically, this this issue really comes out of the Roosevelt administration. There were few, if any, major agencies before the the Depression. In fact, the Supreme Court resisted the uh, enabling acts uh, uh, that created these major uh, agencies basically to get people to work uh, in, in the United States government was trying to oversee major civil projects like CCC many other examples there. A lot of this legislation was actually struck down by the Supreme Court uh, and it, as it's often referred to uh, there was a change in time that saved the nine in reference to the Supreme Court when the president effectively said start, you know, get on board with my program here, otherwise I'm going to start to add judges, or the famous court packing uh, issue. Uh, There was one judge who had a change in mind about whether the delegation of uh, authority out of Congress, essentially, to the executive was constitutional or not. In order to save the nine judges, uh, this was the original court-packing uh, uh, issue, and as ever since then, basically the conservative wing of the Supreme Court has been very worried about this question of who's really legislating here. It should not be the executive. Okay, and this looks like a, well, it looks a lot like executive
2: legislation it, uh, it based does. on a couple of words in the the Nationality Act. Um, which is interesting, because in Canada, our the Parliament has simply delegated vast swaths of the immigration legislating process to the executive directly. Um, although our executive and our legislative merged. Were, are sorry, sorry. essentially merged anyways. And uh-huh. so, uh, in, in the sense that the, the party that's in power in a majority government, as we currently have, um, controls both the legislative and the uh, executive. Um, so when we talk about the, dis- the, we don't have the same divisions that you
1: you'll have in the United States. And I think that's that's the key, which makes this so interesting because this is a separate, this is a separation of powers issue. Uh, and when the United States uh, is in a highly polarized state, as it is, I think most people can agree right now, it is very difficult to pass legislation even if both sides
0: essentially agree that it's a good idea to do so. It's interesting in the Canadian context, because Parliament has devolved a lot of the immigration law building, essentially, to the executive, yet all of the things we talked about regarding sponsorship bars, financial inadmissibility, low-income cutoff, like, that's still all in the law, no, the sponsorship bars are in the regulation. Or the regulation. And so the regulation still, it's not the stuff that's been delegated to, like,
2: ministerial instruction. But see, for me, I, I see two levels in Canadian law. Like, there's essentially, a, or maybe there's four levels of, of where it devolves, right, in the sense that you have the constitutional rights, which are quite limited, essentially limited to Section 6, some stuff in Section 7 that might apply, but Section 6 being mobility rights for citizens and mobility rights for permanent residents, that's about all there is in the Constitution that really applies. Then you look at the Acts which are passed by Parliament, so the Immigration Refugee Protection Act. And that requires going through both houses of parliament, and which I, right. I, I gather, would be the equivalent of your your and your your immigration nationality act, um, and that does set out grounds of inadmissibility, but the regulations they just require being published in the gazette. So as long as there's the power, and a lot of sections of the act give the power to create regulations in certain circumstances, and so. The detention provisions, for example, there's broad con- there's a there's a broad discussion yeah. about how you can detain somebody under the in, in the Immigration Refugee Protection Act, but it's quite the, the description is quite limited. There's, you know, probably three pages of the regulations. That set out in detail the criteria to be considered and how it should be applied, and all of those. That is changed by cabinet. That doesn't need to go back to uh, the executive, and they just need to publish it. It sounds to me like this is a similar process. So, what happens with respect to regulations in Canada is that the regulations will be pre published, there's an opportunity to make comment and then they are published in the Canada Gazette which it sounds like that's the process this has gone through in the US federal register yes and so the, and then the the more recent creation in Canada which administrative law scholars have a little bit of difficulty understanding even what these really are is the ministerial instructions and the ministerial instructions ministerial instructions, Minister instructions Well, how would you distinguish between the ministerial instructions
0: and the guidelines?
2: Well, the ministerial instructions actually have the force of law in in the sense that they are a delegated authority to make law. In other words, the, the minister can change the criteria for the economic class categories by administrative fiat with no notice whatsoever. In other words, the point system in the express entry could be changed by way of ministerial instruction while we're talking right now and Steve's entire practice will have changed without any notice whatsoever, mm-hmm. unlike a change in the regulations. And so that's the, the, and then you have the types of guidelines and guidance that's given to officers which doesn't have force of law necessarily or is soft law, so to speak. But the ministerial instructions actually are law. Uh, In the sense that they're, they have the same force of
0: law as if they were in the act itself. And they can use it to like create programs, reduce intake and programs to zero. Yeah, and Canada's yeah, largest. They can close programs. Yeah, they can yeah, do Canada's a whole lot like, There's programs in the regs that exist, the self employed class for farmers, for example. Although I think they may have finally closed it, but they'll set the number to zero through ministerial instructions. Right. Um, well, maybe one oh sorry.
2: So, I was just going to ask in terms of what we're seeing in the U.S., what you're talking about would be the equivalent of our regulations in the sense that the executive does this through a formalized process, but there's no ability of the legislature to have any input on it, in the, or, or to stop it from happening, they can provide feedback but the executive publishes the regulations that they want. I mean that's the way it would work in Canada, they I to change yes. the regulations, they ask for comment, they get the comment, they can ignore all the comments, publish the regulations that they wanted to anyways. Um, there's no way for, the only way Parliament stops that is to change the act itself to take away the power to regulate or to override the regulations.
1: Yes, that would be, yes, the uh, change the enabling act or be more specific or, or uh, if they are given express uh, control over something by the enabling act and committee or something like that. Uh, one, one interesting area there that I was looking at this morning was the, uh, the refugee ceiling. Uh, And it's actually the president in consultation with Congress who sets the refugee ceiling uh, uh, to the U.S. And the president has threatened to set that number at zero, uh, which theoretically, I suppose, he can do. Uh, And uh, uh, as far as I'm aware, that's strictly with refugees, people that are applying from abroad, under the under the 1980 uh, Refugee Act uh, under the you know five grounds to you know come to the United States uh, and that probably won't affect though the asylum numbers the people that are actually showing up at the ports of entry for example at the southern port uh, and saying I'm seeking asylum uh, many of those people are actually now waiting in Mexico uh, under sort of uh, implicit agreement. Uh, there's a bit of a controversy there because many of those people may now actually be excluded for doing all of that. Uh, I guess that's another discussion. Uh, and of course, the people that actually are inside the United States and are either seeking uh, asylum status uh, through uh, going just going directly to the government asking for it, or people that are actually caught up in the removal side of things and are defensively asking for it. Uh, those, I believe, are not limited, uh, and that is actually you know, governed by by the law. But uh, generally, in the United States, the president is the president, the leader of the executive branch, has is there, the zenith of his power or her power, I suppose, uh, when dealing with people outside the country. So, pretty
0: classic there. <laughs> the refugee ceiling is now zero. I guess that's one thing we should. <laughs> at least that's what in the interests of time on the uh, poverty side is do these public charge financial and inadmissibility rules mean that a refugee will be deported?
1: No
2: and in Canada, that these don't apply to refugees. Okay. That was just worth it yeah. adding. No, that's it. so there's certain inadmissibilities that do not apply to protected persons in Canada. So that's the same of, in
1: the US. Uh, some of the protected classes mentioned in this are, are uh, people that have been uh, trafficked. There is a special protection for people that have been victims of human trafficking. Uh, people that have been of assistance to, uh, uh, to, to the law. Uh, law enforcement also would be exempt from uh, public charge. Law enforcement. Yeah, so there's a T. The T visa is for people that have been trafficked, and the U visa is for people that have um, been victims of crime who have uh, assisted law enforcement, and law enforcement essentially certifies that. Uh, I think I, th- I believe VA was, uh sorry, Violence Against Women Act, it doesn't justify women, but uh, basically abused spouses are also exempt from uh, some of these things. Uh, importantly, I should mention about this rule, and I should have squeezed this in per- before perhaps, is that p- as part of that notice and comment that also takes place uh, in the United States for rulemaking, one of the concerns here was well, what happens about the children? What happens if there's a child that has needs? Uh, Are we going to let the kids go hungry, essentially? And that will not be imputed uh, onto the uh, intending immigrant. Uh, Benefits that are taken by the the children, that was clarified in in the notice and comment period, uh, as are U.S. citizens. So uh, benefits that are, you know, basically say welfare that's taken by U.S. citizens as part of the household also will not be a factor in looking at uh, this future public charge issue.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I don't know if that... uh... Yeah, I don't. because we, we do the opposite. I was going to say, I don't <laughs> think we would distinguish there at all. Because <laughs>
2: like, our, our low-income cutoff is specifically defined by the number
1: of family members.
2: In other words, the low-income cutoff goes up. And it doesn't matter if
1: family, family members. members is Canadian. The, that would still affect the household size for the affidavit of support. So the household size will change the amount of income needed that portion, but shall not be used in... Uh, to, the affidavit of support not going anywhere. This new rule just adds, essentially, new requirements uh, to it. And this this new rule will not look at that, whereas the affidavit of support,
0: yes, if the family size goes up, the income requirements go up. But it won't result in the person being inadmissible. They might just be sued for that money if they get divorced. Well, they theoretically could be... But, the, it could, could be but a, if it's an American citizen child, that... Money won't render the family inadmissible, or I suppose it depends on the context whether
1: it's on the affidavit side or it's on the um basically the future likelihood of becoming a uh. So, if a person, for example, submitted an affidavit of support and said I have uh insufficient income you know to meet the requirements for my household size, without that affidavit, they no longer have that necessary condition to override the presumed inadmissibility. So, I guess, I I guess on that side yes that would still remain but in terms of this new rule that's coming in i think it was quite important for the administration to show that you no know, kids aren't kids aren't going hungry because of this of this new rule i believe that's really where it came from and uh the notice and comment on this rule is quite extensive if you look it up in the federal register it comes to about like 270 pages of uh the rule with all of the uh, responses so i have not read it all 270 pages but uh which is interesting because in Canada it would be the,
2: the opposite in the sense that there's a significant disincentive and I've, I've spoken to families, I just recently spoke to a family about this, um, where if you're trying to sponsor your, form, your spouse and the family's just on the, the threshold of need, there's no um, income requirement to sponsor a spouse, but if you are on welfare you're barred from sponsoring a spouse. And so this family is, you know, a family where they're struggling financially and probably would apply for welfare or would be at the point of considering applying for welfare. They're very reluctant to because they know that it's going to affect the immigration application. And so they'll hold back from doing that um, even though it will affect the children. And that's that's an unfortunate situation or an unfortunate context because the only advice we can give them is, yes, This you know, there are exemptions, we can apply for humanitarian exemptions, we can apply for humanitarian relief, but it will render you ineligible mm. to sponsor your spouse. Um, and unfortunately, here, generally, when you're applying for welfare, you're applying as a family. It's not, you, know, you can't just get welfare for the children, um, or at least I'm, I'm not aware of situations where the children are still in the parent's care and just the child gets welfare. Um, but even in those circumstances, I don't know that it would be. Uh, and so, it's an interesting. Uh, it's interesting that in the U.S. You're, you're making that distinction, and yet we're putting families in a situation in Canada where, in some cases, a spouse will uh, be reluctant to apply for
0: welfare, um, even though it might be in the children's interest for them to do so. Anyway, that'll. We definitely have enough topics to. Continue on to and continue more by. comparison. Your president gives no shortage of immigration stories, so we'll have to do this uh, <laughs> again soon. But for now, that was that was great. Thanks for uh, thanks well, thank for coming on. Yeah, that's that, yeah. that was great. Thanks a lot.
2: Thank you.